The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be talking about the invasion, not of the body snatchers, although I guess in a sense they are, but the invasion of the superbugs. What are they and why should you care? My guest today is Dr. Brad Spellberg. He is a, a, a UCLA infectious disease specialist, and he is the author of a new book called Rising Plague, The Global Threat from Deadly Bacteria and our dwindling arsenal to fight them. Let me do that again. Dry, rising Plague. It's, you know, just reading it, you get scared. Rising Plague, the global threat from deadly bacteria, and our dwindling arsenal to fight them. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water or go back to school or go back to work, comes news of lurking infections that might not have a cure. From the high school locker rooms to company cafeterias, they're everywhere. Now, uh, Today's guest is going to tell you the real scoop. This isn't going to be a, uh, you know, it's not the media trying to scare you. It is um, someone who has done tons of research in this and, uh, and really cares and felt passionate enough to write a book about it. So, Dr. Spellberg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, let's, uh, you know, when people, it's an interesting uh, concept when people hear about superbugs and you know in a sense we're burnt out from swine flu and uh, before that bird flu um, you know it's like people are sort of confused they they their first tendency is to think i mean there's sort of a battle between being scared and thinking oh no this is just some more media hype or the government wanting us to get scared so that they can control us not that that doesn't happen about some things but um you know I'm, I'm hoping, I know that you're going to be able to tell us what the real story is, and, and I guess maybe why don't you address first, because I know you do a lot of talking in the media about this, why don't you address how you deal with this um, sort of ambivalence that people have towards hearing about superbugs? Well, I think you're exactly right. What's happened is that we, um, the, the way that information is disseminated in our society is that it's whoever's shouting the loudest tends to get the, you know, the short-term attention of the media. And so when exciting things come along, like H1N1 influenza, swine flu, ooh, bird flu, uh, smallpox, ooh, it sounds very scary, and it, it captures attention. And, and what that ends up doing is it uh, exhausts the public's attention span for these general issues. So the fact is that what actually kills Americans on a regular basis 
are antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So 2 million Americans per year develop infections in the hospital. They didn't come to the hospital with those infections. They came for another problem, and they developed their infections in the hospital. Those are almost all caused by antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and those infections kill 100,000 Americans per year. So that's what's actually killing people. You know, swine flu uh, could have been disastrous had the death rate been approximate to the Spanish flu in 1918. It did infect tens of millions of people, but the death rate was relatively low. And so I think there was a disproportionate attention paid, and we need to start paying attention to what's actually killing people on a daily basis. Now, just sticking with swine flu for a minute, why do you think, I mean, you know, what was seemed unusual about that is that um, how the the um, international governments kind of uh, came together and, you know, there were all these announcements about the threat level going higher and higher, and there was this, you know, it seemed like an overreaction. How do you explain the scientists who got on the band? You know, you can, yes, you can understand the media. They want you to tune into their radio shows or television shows or whatever, but how do you explain these scientists who started talking about the threat levels going up and it didn't really pan out? Well, I think... We need to understand a couple things. One is that scientific lingo it isn't necessarily translatable easily into standard lingo. And so, you know, there are standard World Health Organization and, and U.S. CDC protocols for, for how to characterize these types of outbreaks. And, you know, the fact is that swine flu did infect millions and millions of Americans. Nobody knows exactly how many, but it was multiple tens of millions. And had the mortality rate from this virus been what it was in 1918, you would be talking about many millions of Americans dead. And, of course, nobody knew what the death rate was going to be when the outbreak began. What they did know is that this was a very infectious strain of influenza. And so what they were projecting is, geez, this thing is spreading like wildfire. We don't know its mortality rate, but if it is a high mortality rate, we have a huge problem on our hands. So hmm. I don't think the scientists, I think maybe what, what could have been done better was to explain what they were worried about a little better, and certainly a better explanation of the vaccine would have been helpful. But I think the scientific community actually responded very um, quickly and appropriately to the general threat when you consider well, the state. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that so many millions got infected. Either either I tuned it out, which I don't think I did because I was, I was trying to pay attention to it. Um, I didn't realize. I mean, it seems to me maybe they stopped... It stopped being popular in the media, or or people stopped wanting to hear about it. I didn't realize that there were that many millions. Oh, there were. Actually... It, it was yeah. It was an enormous number of Americans were infected, and in the hospitals, uh, <laughs> we were being flooded with uh, upper respiratory infection cases. And our diagnostics are not very good, so it's hard to determine exactly what percentage of those cases are influenza, but enough of them were positive with their diagnostics that the number was in the multiple tens of millions of Americans. No question about it. Well, did you notice or did you, that oh, yeah. um, there didn't seem to be that kind of a, that those numbers weren't being uh, reported in the media or there wasn't a continuation of 
of reports so that you would add it up to millions? Well, of course, I'm pretty plugged into the, you know, a lot of the the reporting that goes on. And so I, I felt that the scientific information was being disseminated and what was happening was that the that without truly understanding exactly what the scientists were saying there was hype that was added on top and the most unfortunate thing was the uh the, the combination of the fact that the vaccine production was much slower than people had hoped it would be and the fact that there was a tremendous amount of misinformation about the vaccines that was being spread both of which resulted in inadequate vaccine uptake but all in all, if you were to summarize, and we were helped out by the fact that the virus wasn't that lethal, you know, I think that the scientific response and the public policy response was pretty appropriate, and it was just a little bit over-inflamed in the media. And like I said, I really think, you know, on an annual basis, influenza kills 36,000 patients per year uh, on an average. And this virus didn't kill, that probably didn't kill that many Americans. What it did do was the, the, the Americans that killed were younger than usual. Usually influenza kills older Americans. This one was killing younger Americans. But the mm-hmm. fact is, 100,000 Americans die per year of hospital-acquired infections, and that doesn't count the tens of thousands that die of drug-resistant bacteria that have escaped the hospital and are now rampaging through uh, communities. And that's really the problem that we... The problem that we need to address is that bacteria are increasingly resistant and we are no longer developing new antibiotics. You know, in the past, when resistance caught up with us, the companies would come out with the next generation gorillacillin and bail us out, and that's not happening anymore. Yes, and I guess that that's why you, am I correct, that's why you wrote this book to sort of warn people and try to get people to act on that? Yeah, I mean, the the problem has been, and so, you know, I've seen patients die of untreatable infections. I describe those infections in Rising Plague. I describe people with MRSA infections. That's the methicillin-resistant Staph aureus that's gotten a lot of press um, in the last couple of years. 60 Minutes did a story on it. Um, I, we've seen, you know, those patients, we see those patients. And what I don't think, that, what the public doesn't understand is that we are no longer we no longer have adequate weapons to deal with these bacteria and the problem is getting worse and worse and worse and companies are getting out of the antibiotic development field and i wrote the why book, is that why is that so there's two primary reasons i mean there's a bunch of them but they can be generally grouped into two reasons number one is economic you take an antibiotic for seven, <laughs> seven days and then you stop you take a, a cholesterol drug every day for the rest of your life and companies have figured out the return on investment for a cholesterol drug or a blood pressure drug, dementia, arthritis, diabetes, whole long list of these chronic illnesses, they'll make a lot higher return on investment than they will with an antibiotic. Exacerbating that problem and, in fact, overtaking it in severity in recent years is that the Food and Drug Administration, for a variety of very complicated statistical reasons, is basically created a morass where no one knows what the rules are about how mm-hmm. to get new antibiotics approved. So even the few companies that are left and are saying, you know, the economics are still enough that we can, we can do this, they don't know how to conduct clinical trials to get new antibiotics on the market. And that's really a, a tremendous barrier to getting new drugs approved. Hmm. 
Okay, so the next question would be, so why is the FDA doing this? Well, I don't know how I don't know how detailed you want to get. There are there are statistical concerns about the way that you conduct certain types of clinical trials. And what's happened is that in the aftermath of very highly publicized drug scandals like Vioxx, like an antibiotic called Ketek from about five or ten years ago, um, the, there has been a, a culture of fear created at the FDA where, you know, they don't get any credit when they approve a drug. But if something goes wrong, they get their names plastered all over the newspaper, they get called mm-hmm. up before Congress, they get harassed, um, people get fired. And so there is, there is a hyper-conservative culture at FDA which has allowed statisticians, and the statisticians are the ones driving this conversation, to shout down anyone with a divergent opinion. And so you end up in these situations where, where rules are created that make absolutely no common sense, but they fit the statistical, you know, somebody in front of their computer typing into their statistical software, that spits out the answer to them, and everyone else who practices medicine looks at them and says, you're crazy, you can't do that. But statistically, that's the way you got to do it. Hmm. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things that um, seems to be an, an interesting current example of of um, the problem is the patients that were uh, found in Great Britain who received medical care in India and Pakistan. Tell us about that. So um, in India, there is no antibiotic control. So you can just walk into a store and buy whatever you want without a prescription. And that... that uh, Overuse of antibiotics has generally led to the, the evolution of a strain of bacteria called NDM1, which stands for New Delhi Metallobetalactamase 1. It's a scary name. And basically what that does, what that, this is an enzyme that is produced by bacteria that destroys basically all of penicillin derivatives. Anything that is at all related to penicillin is destroyed. The strains also carry a bunch of other resistant elements such that they are either resistant to everything except one or two last-ditch drugs, which are not very effective and which we don't like to use unless we have to, or even in some cases resistant to everything. And those strains were, uh, have spread through India. They were acquired um, in part by British uh, uh, citizens who were traveling to India for low-cost medical, surgical stuff, cosmetic surgery and stuff. Mm, that's interesting. Brought back to the U.K., they have also egressed now into the United States. There have been patients now in the United States with, this, with these strains. And the, the really scary thing is that these are E. coli. These are common E. coli that live in all of us. Mm. And they have acquired these super-resistance genes and if an E. coli in one of us gets into another one of us, it's going to spread that resistance gene. And there's no way you can, con- you really can't contain E. coli because it's a normal part of the stuff that lives in us. And so the scary potential is that that strain is going to even exacerbate our problems more by spreading a superbug in healthy people in communities who are then going to get sick from that very resistant bacteria. Hmm. So... Is, was that in part because you were saying at the beginning that the people um, people in India can buy antibiotics whenever they want, and so is it because they've 
um, they've overused them that that then we this strain developed? Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> if you ask what is the relationship between our antibiotic use and bacterial antibiotic resistance, we don't actually create the resistance. The bacteria do that. And in fact, we need to remember, we, don't, we did not invent antibiotics. Bacteria invented antibiotics. They did it on the order of 2 billion with a B years ago. So they've been killing each other with these weapons for 20 million times longer than we've even known that these things exist. Hmm. They invented antibiotics and they invented resistance mechanisms to defeat those antibiotics and they've been fighting little microbial wars all over the planet for two billion years. What we do when we use an antibiotic is we dump antibiotic into the environment which kills off bacteria that don't have the resistance genes, leaving behind the bacteria, the the very small number of bacteria that do have the resistance genes, Mm. so that they start to replicate and they start to share their resistance genes with other bacteria. So we increase the rate of spread of pre-existing resistance when we overuse antibiotics. Mm, So it's like survival of the fittest of the bacteria. That's exactly what it is. Hmm. So have there been, so what are doctors doing with these patients, this particular strain? Well, fortunately, the NDM1 has only been seen a couple of times in the United States thus far, although I think it's pretty likely that that's going to change. But there are other strains that that people who take care of hospitalized patients are seeing on a very regular basis, which are nearly totally resistant or in some cases already totally resistant to every antibiotic that is FDA-approved, that is available for prescription. And when we have those patients... Um, what we do is throw the kitchen sink at them and it, it, out of sheer desperation, and they either clear the infection or they don't. Basically, this has set medicine back 75 years. We're, we're back to 1935 before antibiotics. Hmm. Yeah, you know, um, after I became a psychiatrist, I went to UCLA, actually. Um, uh, we're both on, I'm on the clinical faculty there as well. And um, I went to the School of Public Health, and one of the first things or one of the things that I remember uh, about when we started was um, how, you know, they made a big point about how the public health today is so different from how it was in the past. In the past, it was all about infectious disease. Well, I'm telling you, it's about infectious disease and, and smallpox and, and all of these horrible infectious diseases that overran the world and so on. And now, you know, it's, it's so different. We're talking about various other things. And yet, you know, from I guess what your book is a testament to is how we're heading back towards that era with just a new, with new strains of, of, of bacteria. That's right. I mean, I, you know, this gets back, this touches a little bit upon the um, frustration that people like I feel when we, when we talk to FDA statisticians about these issues. And what we hear back is, well, we don't really have a clear understanding of how effective antibiotics are. Antibiotics came out on the market before placebo-controlled trials had been done. There, there was no such thing as a placebo-controlled trial when antibiotics really uh, uh, hit the market. And so, so the statisticians say, well, we don't have a definitive understanding of how effective these drugs are, and that makes us nervous about new drugs being approved. Mm-hmm. And we look at them and say, do you have a clue 
Have you read any history? Are you at all familiar with what the world was like before 1935? The fact is that if you look at mortality curves, death curves, from the United States, uh, during the first 15 years of the antibiotic era, deaths from infections in the United States fell by 220 per 100,000 population. You say, well, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. Let me tell you what that means. Over the next half century, which witnessed the introduction of every other major medical technology, intensive care unit medicine, uh, mechanical ventilators to breathe for people that can't breathe on their own, catheters so we can give life-saving medications and fluids to patients whose blood pressures is to all of that stuff, surgeries, all that stuff. But death rates from infection fell only by 20 per 100,000 during the next half century, less than a tenth as much as it had fallen immediately after the availability of these drugs. Hmm. So to hash out and argue over the statistical minutia of exactly how effective these drugs are is basically to lose the forest through the trees, and that's what's happened. We have lost the forest through the trees. Wow. And, of course, as you were starting to say, um, this is so frustrating for for someone like you on the front lines uh, having to deal with specific patients. You know, the statisticians sit there and, and, you know, look at numbers, and you have live people dying in front of you. That's correct, and it, it is extremely frustrating to have these conversations and to actually even be told during these conversations by by people who don't take care of patients, um, what patients care about. Well, we're told, well, you don't know what patients care about. You're looking at the wrong stuff in these trials. And it's like, well, listen, excuse me. I'm the one taking care of them. How are you telling me what patients care about? It's just crazy. Yes, they care about living, for starters. Yeah, they care about living, and then there, but there are other issues. You know, the death rates from a variety of infections are very low if you have active antibiotics. If you have effective antibiotics, the death rate from pneumonia, for example, is less than 5%. And in the pre-antibiotic era, it was way over 20 or 30%. I mean, it, the death rate just plummeted with antibiotics. But then if you say, well, listen, so we need to look at death in these trials, and that's the only way that we should approve drugs. You say, well, in order for me to, to statistically power a study so that I can know that the new drug works, if I'm looking at death as the endpoint, I need 5,000 patients in the study. It's impossible to do that study. So I have to come up with other measures to, to determine the success of antibiotic therapy. Now, I know when patients have pneumonia, they are coughing, they can't catch their breath, uh, they have very high white blood cell counts because they're infected. They have high spiking fevers. They feel poorly. They just tell you, I feel miserable. At the end of an antibiotic course of therapy, their cough is gone. They're breathing fine. They tell you they feel better. Their fever is gone, and their white count is normal. And that's the kind of thing that we have to look at in trials because the death rate with effective antibiotics is very low. And you to, to, or the statisticians just can't grasp this because they don't see these patients, they don't talk to these patients, they don't know what these patients look like. Hmm. Well, we're probably coming up on a break now. Um, I, I, I didn't want you to start a story before and then have to interrupt it, but when we come back, um, I would like very much for you to tell us some stories about uh, 
examples of patients who you've treated and some of these uh, frustrations. My guest is Dr. Brad Spellberg. He is a UCLA infectious disease specialist. He's the author of Rising Plague, The Global Threat from Deadly Bacteria and Our Dwindling Arsenal to Fight Them. Do you, have you tried saying this three times quickly? <laughs> <laughs> Our Dwindling Arsenal to Fight Them. And uh, obviously this is something that... Um, that affects every one of us, and and uh, and not just people going into the hospital, but people just in. As I said, you know, I thought this was a perfect topic for people going, leaving the summer, and going back to work and back to school. And um, we we need to to understand this better. We're talking today about the invasion of the superbugs, and uh, we will be back after the break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host. Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships... Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST for 
4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about the invasion of the superbugs. What are they and why should you care? My guest is Dr. Brad Spellberg. He is an infectious disease specialist at UCLA, and he's the author of Rising Plague, The Global Threat from Deadly Bacteria, and Our Dwindling Arsenal, to fight them. So before the break, um, I was promising that you were going to um, tell us some stories, some heartbreaking stories about uh, or frustrating stories about uh, patients who you've dealt with um, and when there is this dwindling uh, arsenal of antibiotics. Yeah, so... um... I tell the story in the book, one of the, uh, what, not one of, the, the first patient that I ever encountered who had an untreatable infection was a 20-ish-year-old woman who had leukemia, and she was in the hospital receiving chemotherapy for her, her cancer. And, you know, chemotherapy, one of the big side effects is it wipes out your immune system and it leaves you very susceptible to acquiring infections. So she did inquire, uh, did acquire uh, a very resistant bacteria called Acinetobacter, which is one of it's sort of the king of resistance. I mean, this bug is just legendary for its ability to develop resistance. And in fact, she initially got better on the one drug left to treat it, and then she relapsed. And when she relapsed, it was resistant to that drug as well. And we literally had run out. There wasn't anything left. Hmm. And um, she had a couple of kids, small kids, and she had a husband. And and I will never forget the experience of trying to explain to her husband that she had an infection in her blood that we were not going to be able to cure. Hmm. And she died from it, despite maximal medical therapy. So that was the first time I saw it. Um, and um, shortly, probably about a year after that, a new drug got approved called tigacycline, and that drug had the ability to treat that type of infection. And so we, again, had a weapon, but we're already losing tigacycline, and we're already seeing infections that are now becoming resistant to that drug as well. And the other thing that's happened is that we've started reusing a drug called colistin, which was uh, around since the 50s, but in the 1960s, people stopped using it. It was very toxic, blows people's kidneys, and it is not terribly effective. And that drug has had a huge resurgence because we have nothing left. And we're also seeing resistance to that drug. 
And mm-hmm. so, you know, th- this is the kind of stuff that we're confronted with. Um, and, and what do you do when you have one of these people? I just very recently, within the last month or two, um, had um, a lady from a nursing home who had uh, an infection called KPC Klebsiella. And that bacteria started in New York City about five or ten years ago. Uh, and it spread down the eastern seaboard, and it started to spread inland, and it is now in the city of Los Angeles, so it's spread across the entire country. Uh, and we've seen several patients with it. It is The strains that we've seen are resistant to every FDA-approved antibiotic, and my patient died despite being on three antibiotics, three of the most powerful antibiotics there are. She died. Hmm. Yes, of course, that's the problem. When you have to keep getting, making stronger and stronger antibiotics, there is more of a risk to uh, of toxicity. Well, the the thing is, is that if new the 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 this returning to this old drug, colistin, uh, forces us to use this this toxic drug. But yeah. but if you look at succeeding generations of antibiotics, when they come out, many of them are actually very safe and they're very effective. And what happens is over time, the bacteria catch up. You know, there's a Nobel Prize winner, Joshua Lederberg, who wrote 10 years ago that the future of humanity and microbes will likely evolve as episodes of our wits versus their genes. Hmm. And that is such an accurate statement. And the sad thing is, is that since he wrote it, We've stopped using our wits to keep up with their genes. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, and I guess also um, the the drugs that uh, um, this this onslaught of generics. I, I guess doesn't that play into it too, as far as the um, pharmaceutical companies being hesitant? I mean, I don't know if that affects antibiotics any more than any other kind of drug. But how does that work? It certainly does. I mean, I think, you know, the, the fact is that it, um, when you get a patent for an antibiotic of 20 or 21 years and you spend the first 10 years of that patent developing the drug so that it doesn't get the market, by the time it gets to market, there's on average an 8 to 12 uh, year period of patent life left on the drug. And as soon as the patent expires, generics pop onto the market, steal business, and make the return on investment go down. And so if you're talking about relatively small market drugs already, the fact that patent expiration occurs in a relatively short period of time means that companies are increasingly interested in making a lot of money during that 8- to 12-year period. So they're far more interested in developing the next cholesterol drug than they are in the next antibiotic. So do you think that's one of the things that should change, that the patent should be um, the, the period that it lasts for should be longer? So there are, uh, the, you're raising an important point, and, and, and what do we do? And, and so we need to do a bunch of stuff. We need to preserve the antibiotics we have much more effectively. We need to not waste them on people who have colds or the flu and only give them to people that really have bacterial infections. Uh, we need to stop um, uh, feeding animals antibiotics for the purposes of promoting their growth and not for the purpose of treating their infections. And 70% of the antibiotic use in the United States goes into animals, and the vast majority of that doesn't go to treat sick animals. It goes to promote growth so that the livestock are larger. And that needs to stop. Now, how does that work? <laughs> how do the antibiotics make the animals larger? Nobody knows. Or... Nobody knows. It, huh. Nobody really understands why that happens. But, but it is a well-described phenomenon, and so a huge amount of antibiotics 
goes to making animals larger, which is not an appropriate use of these drugs. So we need to conserve and the antibiotics we have much more effectively. We need so to we prevent eat the, the animals, and um, it's essentially like we're taking, I mean, at a lower dose, but like we're taking the antibiotics. Well, what happens, it's, it, it, what happens is that you breed resistant bacteria in the animals, and then those resistant uh-huh. bacteria can spread to humans. That's what happens. Uh-huh. So, so in addition to, to preserving our antibiotics, we need to prevent infections from happening in the first place. We need much more effective infection control technologies. We need better, more and better vaccines to prevent infections. We need to clean hospitals more effectively using new technologies. I consult for a company called Zymec, which has this device. You put it in the center of a hospital room, you close the door, you press a remote control button, and it mists the entire hospital room in a mist of antiseptic. And then 30 minutes later, you open the door, the particles are so small they've evaporated, so it leaves the room dry to the touch. That's the kind of idea that we need to go forward with to prevent these infections from happening in the first place. And we need to rekindle antibiotic development. And the two things we need to do to rekindle development are, number one, we need economic incentives. We need Congress to pass legislation that changes the return on investment calculation for these drugs. That can be done by decreasing costs of development, for example, by grants and contracts and liability protection, or and or by increasing return on investment, which could be, for example, by patent extensions, exactly as you're talking about. whole variety of ideas out there, and we need Congress to move on that. And then finally, we desperately need the FDA to figure itself out to get to, to make reasonable, rational, common sense rules so that new antibiotics can get approved. Yeah, well, are there, I mean, so is someone, um, are there lobbyists? <laughs> I mean, um, there are so many things that Congress is doing that isn't that aren't helpful. Uh, is is this going up the pipeline? Is something going to move on these things that you bring up? These suggestions for years, uh, the IDS, the Infectious Disease Society of America, which is an organization of nine thousand physicians and scientists that work on infections, uh, has lobbied uh, Congress to in, one inform them about this problem and two propose solutions. It really hasn't gotten, we really haven't had a lot of success until the last six months or so. And I think there really has been an absolute sea change on Capitol Hill in the last half year to a year on this issue. And all of a sudden, both houses of Congress and even the White House is signaling, we hear you, we get it, we have a big problem with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, we are going to move on it. And so the, 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 the attitude is very different now, and I actually think that in the next Congress, meaningful legislation is likely to be introduced. Well, that's, uh, I guess, whether the wit is going to uh, outrun the genes, I mean, whether, whether people are going to wake up in time to, uh, to do something. I mean, I guess the question is people you know, may not want to think about this, but what what would be the worst-case scenario? What if Congress doesn't do anything and there aren't um, new antibiotics, or at least not as fast as the, as the bacteria are becoming resistant to them? What would, be, what would life look like? What would be the worst-case scenario? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and so, again, to avoid hyperbole, we're not talking about the end of the human race, okay? Humans were around for 4 million years before we even knew what an antibiotic was. What we're talking about is a 
reversal of medicine back to the pre-antibiotic era for not all infections, because there are some infections that aren't antibiotic resistant, but for an increasing number of them. So <laughs> we're, we're talking about people dying of infections that we used to consider routine and mundane and nobody died from. Simple pneumonia, simple skin infections. Those now become lethal. Lifespans shorten. Very sophisticated medical technologies which keep people alive but as a side effect increase risk of infection become fatal. Complicated surgeries, chemotherapy to treat cancers, being in an intensive care unit on a breathing machine with a catheter in your bloodstream to give you life-saving medications. We're talking about those things not working anymore because they cause as many deaths as, they, as lives they save. That, it's a reduction in the quality of life, and it's a reduction in the average lifespan. That's what we're talking about. Well, and I guess from a psychological viewpoint, um, the more contagious people are, in a sense, yeah. The more, I mean, that will have psychological ramifications, I mean, in terms of making people um, scared of each other or scared to be in groups or... Absolutely. Well, we do need to take another break. My guest is Dr. Brad Spellberg. His book is Rising Plague, The Global Threat from Deadly Bacteria and Our Dwindling Arsenal to Fight Them. We'll be back. Stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. If you want to get ahead, you have to stand out from the crowd, the clutter, and the competition. Are you? Tune in each week for Standing Out with Lauren Saunier. Lauren and her guests have the secrets that can help you and your business get noticed, get attention, and achieve your desired results no matter where you're starting from. Standing Out with Lauren Saunier, live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get ready to be a marketing machine. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. 
Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the Terrorism Hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about the invasion of the superbugs, what are they and why should you care? My guest is Dr. Brad Spelberg. He is a UCLA infectious disease specialist and he's the author of Rising Plague, The Global Threat from Deadly Bacteria and Our Dwindling Arsenal to Fight Them. Um, during the break, you were starting to tell me about your friend. We were talking before that about the psychological implications of people becoming more contagious and, and tell us about your friend. So I have a uh, a friend who, in the community, not with no healthcare contact, this person had previously been extremely healthy, um, acquired an infection in his abdomen called diverticulitis, which is a very common cause of usually very mild intra-abdominal inflammation. And uh, he ended up having uh, a very antibiotic-resistant form of this infection, which caused him to erode a hole in his colon. He had to go to surgery to save his life. They whacked out eight inches of his colon and left him with a colostomy bag for four months. And um, he eventually did recover, thankfully, um, but uh, we asked him to come out and talk to Congress uh, with us and share his story. And so he flew out to Washington, D.C., and on the airplane out, uh, he was talking to the person sitting next to him, and they were talking about why they were flying to D.C., and he told his story, and the person sitting next to him said, is it safe for me to be sitting next to you? And he started leaning away from him. And, and I think that really gets to the exact point that you made. Yes. And so what did your friend say? I mean, there, is, there was no uh, specific precaution to be taken in that, you know, uh, he wasn't actively infected at the time. Um, so, you know, uh, he had recovered, but it did leave this psychological issue. Um, which, you know, uh, you could sort of understand both persons' perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now tell us what we can, <laughs> now that we're, uh, we're all ter- terrified about the end of the world coming, <laughs> um, tell us about the, what, what we as individuals, I mean, in addition to sort of being attuned to and, and supportive of these kinds of things that you talked about with Congress and the FDA and so on, what kinds of things can we do as individuals to try to make sure this doesn't happen to us. There's, I think, four things that your listeners should do. Number one, wash your hands. And I know that sounds very mundane, but it turns out that that's by far the most effective thing you can do to protect yourself from drug-resistant bacteria. It's not 100% effective, but the fact is that we interact with our environment using our hands. And uh, you're most likely, if you're going to acquire one of these bacteria, you're most likely to acquire it by contact with something. So regular hand washing is really the cornerstone of infection control efforts here. And your listeners can do that either with soap and water or alcohol. Foams and gels are perfectly adequate. Number two, try to stay out of the hospital. 
And that's where the nastiest of the nasty bacteria live. That means try to live a healthy lifestyle. Again, that's not going to be 100% effective. People who are very healthy sometimes have to go to the hospital for a variety of reasons. But you can reduce your health care contact by living a healthy lifestyle. Number three, if you are in a hospital or in a healthcare environment, work with your provider to try to get home as soon as you can. I hear my patients tell me all the time, doctor, it feels like you're rushing me out of the hospital. Well, guess what? I am, because I've seen what happens when people stay in the hospital day after day after day. They pick up bacteria that they wouldn't have gotten if they were at home. And finally, number four, go to www.idsociety.org, the Infectious Disease Society of America website. They have an advocacy link. Click on that link. You will find, if you type your zip code in, it will tell you who your representative is in Congress, and there will be a pre-printed letter to your congressman about various types of legislation that you'll find on that webpage. We need political activism. We need people to tell their representatives, we care about this issue and we want you to act to fix it. Could you give that website address again? Sure. www.idsociety.org. As in Infectious Disease Society, idsociety.org. That's right. Okay. And what about, I know a lot of parents um, have been wondering about immunizations, schools not letting kids in unless they have, they're up to date in their immunizations, and parents becoming more and more afraid of actually um, getting their children immunized. Yeah, this has been one of the biggest problematic areas in medicine over the last 20 years. There are There is a segment of the population that does not believe that vaccines work and believe that vaccines actively cause harm, for example, cause autism. And so I think the thing to do here, I'm not going to be able to convince people that have a religious belief on this issue, and I'm not even going to try. If you have already made up your mind that vaccines are evil and that you don't want to give them to your kids, there's nothing I'm going to be able to say to change your mind. So I'm going to talk to the rest of your audience, which is to say that if you look at the science and take, um, try to sort of dispassionately, objectively look at the science, the fact is that there have been 20 separate studies by separate investigators conducted all over the world, all of which have found no link between vaccines of any kind and autism, no link between any component of vaccines, any preservatives in vaccines. There is no link between vaccines and autism that can be identified by any scientific method. The fact is that what kills people are the infections the vaccines are designed to prevent. We've had deaths in the state of California recently from pertussis because parents haven't been vaccinating their kids. Their kids acquire pertussis, and then their newborns pick it up from their siblings, and they die from it. So, and when measles... Yes, whooping cough. Just to clarify, pertussis yes. is whooping cough. Thank you for pointing that out, yes. Uh, measles, same thing. Whenever vaccine coverage rates decline, these infections come back, and they kill people. And so it's very important for parents to make an informed decision. Vaccinations are a critical element of public health. They do prevent death, and they also prevent suffering from disease, even that doesn't lead to death. Yes, it's been, I guess that that's been sort of a frustrating thing, too, because there has been um, sort of a conspiracy theory uh, 
tone to some of the reports about back vaccines. Autism, of course, is the number one, but even... I mean, even it is true that, um, for example, with swine flu in, in L.A., I'm sure you got this, too, uh, even though no one was really talking about this in the media, the L.A. Health Department sent out letters to doctors asking us to report cases of Guillain-Barre, which is a neuromuscular disorder that you can get from um, either the substance in the vaccine or the preservative or something. So uh, th- let, me, let me be clear. Um, there is no 100% safe intervention. There is no 100% safe vaccine. There is no 100% safe drug. Even water can be toxic if you take it the wrong way or take too much of it. So, yes, there are complications of vaccines. Guillain-Barre is a well-described complication of vaccination. It's not so much a complication of the vaccine as it is your immune system getting confused and attacking your own body after being stimulated by the vaccine. But the fact is that Guillain-Barre, the incidence in a standard influenza year is way under 1 in 100,000. Your chance of getting it is less than 1 in 100,000. Your chance of dying from influenza is a lot higher than that. Yes, absolutely. Well, let me again thank you, Dr. Brad Spielberg. His book, which you can get where books are sold, in bookstores as well as on Amazon and, and barnesandnoble.com, I'm sure, and places like that. It's very fascinating stuff. We really do need to know about it. It's, the book, is, again, is called Rising Plague, The Global Threat from Deadly Bacteria and Our Dwindling Arsenal to Fight Them. So thank you very much, Dr. Spellberg. This has been really, you've made a very uh, complicated topic, very easy to understand and and, uh, conveyed how important it is for us to understand. So thank you for being on Dr. Carol's Couch. And thank you all for listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.